Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Blue Lineage podcast series. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the last artists in rock and roll, and we're going to slowly move into soul. Um, You can see in this episode, some of the artists, or one of the artists, really uh, kind of crosses over into all three as far as R&B, soul, and rock and roll. And then we'll talk about a little bit, we'll get a little bit into funk. Um, We'll more focus on the genre later on in the timeline series. But uh, one of the artists today is uh, one of the primary facilitators and originators of funk. So we'll end up talking a, a good amount about it today. So the first artist on the timeline is Laverne Baker. And Laverne Baker was originally known as Dolores Williams. Uh, She was an R&B singer and early rock and roll and uh, soul performer. Uh, She was raised by her aunt, Merlene Baker, who was a blues singer who was known as as Memphis Many. And so that was uh, really one of her earlier influences and helped her get into that in her singing career. And... As far as early performance, she grew up singing on the streets of downtown Chicago, where she was from. And as a teenager, she started singing at Club DeLisa. And her stage name at that time was Little Miss Sharecropper. And it was actually based on another well-known act at the time, a jazz singer who went by the name of Little Miss Cornshucks. And that was one of the things uh, Laverne Baker reflected on later in her career as far as that act and that character. Um, She looked at it as not uh, her proudest time or moment, but um, considering that time and you know, what her management and the direction she was try- trying to go, it seemed marketable because Little Miss Cornshucks, who that character was based on, uh, she would essentially perf- uh, portray herself as a simple farm girl or, you know, sharecropper. And it was really to market to a lot of the people who were migrating. We've talked about the Great Migration a number of times on previous episodes, but a lot of the um, black population that was moving from the rural area, from you know these farm uh, sharecropping plantations towards the city, and especially in certain areas um, like Memphis and some of these areas where you know farming may have still been included or. You know, the immediate area was rural. Um, It was especially appealing to that population. But overall, in general, you know, the black population at that point in time was still, you know, largely coming from rural areas where that was the primary, you know, form of work. And so it was popular. Little Miss Cornshucks was popular among former black farmers, but it was also, you know, just kind of an attraction Uh, Just, you know, her character in general, and she had success there. And so Little Miss Sharecropper was based on that. And I think 
know, luckily for Laverne Baker, she was able to evolve from that character where Little Miss Cornshucks, you know, both of them are great singers in their own right, but Little Miss Cornshucks, I don't have her real name, I don't believe in my notes, but she was a, a, a pretty good uh, singer in her own right, and was sort of a pioneer in her own way, um, and I think her character, especially looking back in history, was reduced and maybe, you know, tucked under a little bit just because of, you know, what that, that re- the time it represented and the way uh, she portrayed herself. It's not really, uh, you know, the most positive imagery um, representing black people and sort of the marketing that that was supposed to accomplish is not really the best either. But like I said, she was able to, in the case of Laverne Baker, she was able to move on from that at some point. Um, After that, that kind of, that act got her recognition over time and popularity, and she uh, recorded with a number of labels after that. Uh, She moved to Detroit in 1947, and she was a regular at the the Flame Show Bar, and 1949 was when she really started to go around and record. And during that time, she used both the name Little Miss Sharecropper and she would also use the name Bea Baker. And of course, Baker is the name of her aunt, the last name. And she, she held on to that. And in 1952, that was when she began to perform as Laverne Baker, and she toured the urban theater circuit, also known as the Shitland Circuit, with uh, the Todd Rose Orchestra, and that's where she really was able to start to hone her own sound and get that professional touring experience and performance experience with a band like that. In 1953, she was able to go solo, and she signed with Atlantic Records, and her first uh, significant symbol, sorry, single was Soul on Fire. And that was really a, when you listen to it, it's really a gospel-infused R&B song. You know, this is before the soul era, so people wouldn't consider it soul, but you can already see, I think mostly because of her voice, she has you know, a very uh, voice that fits what soul music uh, really is, which, you know, of course, has very strong gospel roots, so you could say that her she has a very a very uh, fitting voice for lead in gospel music. But in this case, you know, she was really one of the first people to bring soul and that, that sound to uh, to secular music or mainstream music R and B in this case, uh, since it didn't it didn't cross over the pop charts. Um, and it's, it's innovative in that way because, as I just said, the soul era is several years down the road. We'll touch on it a little bit, but it's it's quite a ways away. So she probably doesn't get as much credit as maybe she should because she was kind of modeled as 
at least from the industry perspective, she's kind of modeled as this sort of follow-up to Ruth Brown, who we talked about in the last episode, who's really one of the kind of that pinnacle you know, model voice of the time in R&B. And Laverne Baker brought, you know, what Ruth, Ruth Brown brought, but she had a, you know, a unique sound. And that's got, that was kind of the plan of the industry at the time is uh, trying to evolve, you know, seeing that R&B was tailoring off a little bit. You know, you had the rock and roll era coming in. And so trying to keep this R&B um, sound competitive with, you know, this really uh, sound of rock and roll that was really taking off and becoming popular, you know, there, there was... Uh, need to switch things up and that was where the industry saw Laverne Baker going so when she released Twe- Tweed- Tweedledee in 1955 it charted on the pop charts but similar to other cases we've talked about um, the singer Georgia Gibb she covered the song and her song charted much much higher than uh, Laverne Baker's, and of course this was something that we talked about with Fast Domino, um, mostly in depth, but happened repeatedly to other singers on the timeline, uh, specifically you know white performers taking you know music that they released and then releasing on the pop charts um, and it doing uh, better just because you know you're able to circumvent the R&B the R&B uh, scene and kind of take your song straight to the pop charts where they're already intended to be and in Laverne Baker's case she actually attempted to get Congress to change the law to prevent people of doing identical the identical copying of songs uh, but she was un- unsuc- unsuccessful at that time. And, you know, in, in these days, obviously, it's it's much harder to do. It's a different, completely different pay- playing field. But at that time, artists were able to essentially just take songs and and perform them as their own. As we talked about last episode, you know, it, it's a completely different situation than now because with the way music was advertised and marketed you know these artists like Laverne Baker were starting out on the R&B charts they're going to be played on radio stations which radio stations are very genre oriented you have you know your top 40 you have your pop stations you have your R&B stations and all the other stations and if you are an R&B artist then most likely on an RBS station, you're going to be played to a certain audience who they've identified as being an R&B market. So you're not going to cover as much ground as a pop station would. The pop station, of course, is the kind of that gateway to the mainstream, which is the largest of the population, because in theory, you know, that top 40 music is supposed to be representative and marketable to, you know, the widest audience. And so if you're able to take a song and, you know, immediately put to that market, 
you know, you have ex, uh, success. You're going to have more success. You're going to sell more records. And it's going to, you know, it's a real game changer in compared to d- comparison to today where there's a lot of different ways to access music. Uh, of course, you have national radios. You know, certain radios are, are um, radio stations um, are syndicated across the whole country. Um, and the way music, streaming music, you know, is completely different. As far, as far as the way you can discover music, discover artists, and all that. And, of course, TV is a huge factor, you know, becomes a huge factor, and to some degree is still a factor today. So, you know, it's, a, it's an unfortunate thing that keeps happening, and I think f- especially for a c- certain people like Laverne Baker who, you know, May, may or may not have had more success during that time if she was able to have access to that market or, you know, was able to retain her own music for herself because uh, she's, you know, a, definitely a legend. I think for people, R&B, old school R&B people who, you know, who follow history, the history and, and whatnot, you know, they'll know of her. I, I think a lot of people know of her, but, you know, she's not somebody who... I would consider a a household name for you know music households who are musically pretty musically comp- competent in music history. So I think it's un- unfortunate for certain people like that, like a Laverne Baker and you know like a a Roy Brown, some of these people who really had a good amount of success. So you know you don't really I wouldn't say you necessarily feel bad for them, but at the same time, you know, you do have some empathy because, you know, this was something, a pattern that occurred over and over, but we talked about a lot in the last episode in depth, so I'm not going to get into it too much today. So 1956, if you look at the timeline, that's when she recorded Jim Dandy, and that was uh, considered an R&B song, but it's it was the timing and the sound. It's clearly a rock and roll song and another one of those early rock and roll hits and what's interesting about her song and what kind of sets her apart is that she still has those soul elements so not only is it a rock and roll song but you can see how she is uh, infusing those sounds of soul and and uh so the song in many ways is you know ahead of its time kind of combining those two elements you know the big element of rock and roll which was you know really big at the time and then also, you know, adding some sounds that people really didn't fully latch on to until a few years later. And because with this success that she got from Jim, Jim Dandy, because it was uh, a rock and roll song in that rock and roll era, she was able to um, tour with Alan Freed, who, who we talked about last, uh, last episode. And Alan Freed, with all these rock stars who were able to cross over from the R&B top pop charts, he took a lot of these uh, artists on, uh, it was a rock and roll tour, and they were able to tour their country, and it was called like the Alan Freed All-Star Show, and it was really just a showcase and really, you know, put their popularity to a whole nother level as far as stardom at the time, and really um, cemented them as 
these rock and roll stars. She was also able to star in some of the rock and roll films similar to the other rock and roll artists we talked about. Uh, She was in Rock, Rock, Rock and Mr. Rock and Roll. Uh, Her biggest release was actually a ballad in 1958 called I Cried a Tear. Uh, You know, a very good song that showcases her vocal abilities. Uh, You know, if you've heard of Laverne Baker, then you've probably heard of this song before. It's uh, one of the more timeless songs that she released. And in 1963, she released C.C. Rider. And that was really a high point at that point in uh, her career that was kind of slowly declining. Um, the soul artist, which ironically, you know, she had that soul sound, but she never really transitioned to being a, to match, you know, what the younger new soul singers uh, were bringing to the, to the music table. She, uh, she was still kind of in that R&B rock and roll uh, scene more so than soul. And so they kind of were taking over the market and really were holding up, holding down the R&B charts. And the rock and roll part of it, as we've talked about before, was, you know, slowed down pretty significantly, pretty suddenly. And so she was kind of wrapped up in all that. And in 1964, she recorded with Brunswick Records, which uh, I highlighted. It's on the timeline, and it was significant because she recorded Think Twice with Jackie Wilson. We'll talk about a little bit later. And it was uh, Jackie Wilson earlier in his career, and and, um, yeah, that was, it was a, it's a good song, and it was uh, just to kind of highlight that collaboration between these two artists who are on the timeline. And then after that, she uh, joined the USO. She toured uh, with the USO in 1967 and continued on for a couple years. But in 1969, she got sick while she was in the Philippines. And she was hospitalized uh, there for a while. And while she was in the hospital, uh, the commander of the base where she was at was in Subic Bay, uh, the commander was actually a fan of Laverne Baker, and he offered her a job at the Commissioned, Office, commissioned Officers Club. And she actually ended up performing there for 20 years, so she really you know, just stepped away from music business, uh, was just performing for a long time at this base in the, in the Philippines, um, all the way till uh, 1988. And she returned to the U.S. at that time for the Atlantic Records 40th anniversary celebration. And at that point, she got back into the music business uh, and she toured the country, um, mostly you know, performing the songs that she had already gotten hits with. But she also uh, performed in the 1990 uh, broad, Broadway hit Black and Blue. And that was kind of marked her the peak in her comeback, uh, being able to perform that show. And then in 1993, things, uh, health issues, pretty bad health issues related to diabetes caught up to her, and she actually ended up losing both of her legs uh, as a result. 
but even at that point, she, uh, when she recovered, she uh, started touring again and performing again. Uh, she performed from her wheelchair as she was, she was uh, still learning to use her prosthetics. And when 1997 came around, she was just getting comfortable really uh, walking again and performing on stage in that way. But unfortunately, she passed away of heart failure that same year in 1997. So, you know, Laverne Baker, interesting career. You know, that 20-year break, um, you know, is kind of unique to step away from show business. You know, whether she would have been kind of stuck in that uh, kind of um, nostalgic rock and roll type tour that some of the artists, many other artists we talked about on the timeline, if she would have ended up there, that would have been interesting. Um, or if she would have at some point maybe focused on adapting more to that uh, soul sound. And since her voice really uh, fit well and she probably could have adapted her style potentially, but you know, maybe that was part of her decision and the reason to stay and take that opportunity in the Philippines and step away from show business, you know, who knows? I don't know, but you know, great singer, great influencer on the soul genre and, uh, uh, you know, covers quite a bit as far as versatility and rock and roll R&B and soul. So that is Laverne Baker. Uh, next on the timeline is Chuck Berry. And Chuck Berry kind of, he kind of wraps up. He's a final rock and roll uh, icon or star on the timeline. Uh, as far as, you know, the rock and roll sound. We'll talk about a little bit about uh, rock minimally. I think maybe we have one artist, one rock artist on the timeline. But Chuck Berry really closes out the rock and roll era at least as the timeline goes. And he was a, you know, he was known for being a guitar uh, innovator and he was also a great songwriter. He's originally from St. Louis and one of the early events that shaped his life is in 1944, his friends decided to go on a cross-country road trip to California. And while they're on the trip, they started to run low on money and somehow they got to this idea where the way they were going to get money was to rob these local businesses and it didn't work out and they were all arrested and they were given 10 year sentences um, and he was sent to a like a reformatory kind of like juvenile prison school situa situation uh, it's kind of similar to James Brown we'll talk about later on in the episode and during this time he was when he focused more on music uh, you know up until that point he'd been doing some I mean he was young so he was he was uh, doing some odd jobs uh, he didn't really get much schooling and he ended up serving three years there but while he was there, he also started a quartet. As I just said, you know, he was focused a little bit more on music, so that was part of that. And he was able to sing at services at the 
the the reformatory school, the chapel there for the you know the people or inmates who are there. And then after that, he briefly went to night school where he trains, trained as a hairstylist, among other things. He did some other odd jobs during that time uh, before really getting into professional music. And by 1942, he joined the Sir, Sir John Trio. And that was really his first, uh, you know, that was his first band and first uh, experience and performance and, you know, official formal uh, formal experience in the music profession. His, his uh, big influence that he named was T-Bone Walker, which, you know, as a guitarist, you can certainly understand that. In our episode, we talked about how, you know, T-Bone Walker was such a prolific guitarist. And when you look back over time, over that period of time, uh, you know, he cer- certainly want maybe, if maybe, you know, at the top, if not the most influential guitarist as far as the electric guitar and where he took that and how it carries and stands up, you know, in, in modern guitar work. But the the way that Chuck Berry approached it was a little bit differently, and he focused more on rhythm, uh, where T-Bone Walker was known for his riffs, you know, that solo uh, lead work, you know, a lot of focus on the a single string, where Chuck Berry was, you know, much more about, you know, chord structure, focused a lot about rhythm, and you know, when you listen to his music, even when he, you know, has his little, uh, his brief solo work, he is very chord oriented. It's not, it's not the, uh, the same as, as T-Bone Walker, or even when you think about the guitarists from the later era, and you think about, you know, lead work and solo work, it's, a lot of it is more of what you would think about with a traditional solo as far as a lot of single string work and less emphasis on rhythm. And so that that really kind of sets him apart. And of course, you know, it's also guitar of the time. You know, he's preceding, you know, T-Bone Walker is certainly ahead of his time. And you think of some of the other people like B.B. King, who's on our timeline as far as these type of guitarists who are really doing that type of solo work and really, you know, transforming what was the acoustic blues to the electric blues, but even more so kind of shaping uh, the rock guitar that would come later. And Chuck Berry is kind of shaping a whole different aspect of that. So, you know, it's not necessarily that he was intentionally uh, shifting away from this. I think at the time, you know, the electric guitar itself was still, you know, people were still working out new ways or it wasn't the right way to do it. People were still experimenting and, you know, learning different ways, you know, as far as his influences, when you think of, you know, T-Bone Walker, there was, you know, a limited, very limited selection as far as guitars who were doing what he was doing at the time with the electric guitar specifically. Um, as far as his lyrical style, uh, he looked, he named Louis Jordan as a big influence and you know, that makes sense. You know, once again, when you talk about standouts, similar to T-Bone Walker, you think of Louis Jordan, who still, you know, his band, of course, as we talked about, still holds quite a few hit records. Uh, 
um, you know, even to this day, he has holds some charting records. And so, you know, his performance style, we talked about his stage presence and, you know, this his delivery was, you know, definitely, you know, probably the most recognized at the time. Um, and all these other contributions that him and his band made as far as their, their approach to music and their versatility. And then in 1955, he uh, got his first record. Um, he had met uh, Muddy Waters, and Muddy Waters had heard some of his music, and he connected him with Chess Records. And the first song that he had played for the people at Chess Records was a cover of Ida Red. And they ended up renaming renaming that to Maybelline, which is Chuck Berry's first hit. And, you know, it's one of those songs that is uh, on the list for one of those early rock and roll hits. And in 1956, he wrote, he released another song, Roll Over Beethoven, which was part of the After School album, which is the album that is listed on the timeline. And that was an even bigger hit. And... You know, Chuck Berry had a number of hits, but a lot of his songs, you know, even included on the After School Session album, which is on the timeline, a lot of his songs were not, you know, they didn't chart, they weren't, you know, considered successful, and the reason that the album is on the timeline and not an individual song or songs is just because, you know, Chuck Berry, Chuck Berry's music may not have charted, but as we'll see, you know, later on, his music was really influential and all these artists were coming up, these young artists were clearly listening to not only his hits, but were going through his albums and using, utilizing that to innovate and emulate, you know, Chuck Berry's style and influence their music. So in Chuck Berry's case, he did have some big hits, but his more most important contribution was really his actual uh, innovation on guitar and his style more so than you know individual songs so that's why that that's uh set up that way um, and the other component of course of Chuck Berry is his live performance you know his uh you know sporadic hits you know were he, he had a good amount of success from that but as we just said, a lot of them were, it was hit and miss, but all of that was made up for with his live performances and people would just come to see him just for that. Uh, you know, he was known for, uh, you know, his flamboyance and and uh, stage presence. You know, he was all into all the guitar tricks that, uh, you know, we've talked about with some previous guys like T-Bone Walker and, and Charlie Patton going way back. And so that really, um, you know, put him to that next level and brought him into the circle of these other rock and roll stars who were coming on, just like Little Richard was also an incredible, not only incredible performer, but innovator in the rock and roll genre. And so like Laverne Baker, he appeared on a lot of Alan Freed's uh, all-star shows and rock, rock films. And, you know, that success was kind of, 
not it was cut well it was interrupted i want to say cut short because uh, as we talked about he had uh he'd already had some criminal justice uh system experience when he was much younger and later on he had a incident um in 1959 he was accused of driving two girls across the street uh okay so he was accused of uh, driving two girls who worked at a nightclub that he was associated with and he was apparently driving them home or driving them across state lines for other reasons uh, because of state law and you know the relations that he had with them were unclear but you know they appeared to be romantic and at su on some level and because of that, uh, it violated the Mann Act, uh, also known as immort Immortality Law. And if you're not familiar with that, that's essentially a law that prevented interracial relations. So, you know, it's uh, a little bit controversial because the law, so the reason he got in trouble was not because one of these girls, at least one of them, was underage but it was because of the interracial aspects. So that's kind of, you know, when you talk about the controversy and whether or not he should have went to jail, you know, that's, you just have to remember that he's being prosecuted for the interracial component. And, you know, obviously in current times, we're looking at the underage component as being criminal. So at the time, you know, there's certainly, there could have been criminal activity. I mean, there's a, it's one of those things where, you know, the way the case unfolded in court and the way things all went down, um, you know, th during the times, there were a lot of cases where uh, black men were being acute, made, have, made getting these accusations and the stories were, you know, falsified or, or doctored or altered. Um, and they would end up going to prison, you know, even with little evidence. So, you know, it's, uh, it's not good for sure. You know, I don't know what actually happened, but I think the concerning part is, you know, just the, the man law itself and the immortality law, and he ended up going to prison for three years due to that, um, after his jail time, um, his uh, the British invasion or the music phenomenon known as the British invasion had hit, and so a lot of the hits that he previously recorded, or in songs that even songs that weren't hits, um, were now um, becoming popular because of some of the all the uh, artists who were coming over from from Europe and, you know, the new sounds here in the U.S., they were, you know, crediting Chuck Berry and and uh, were covering some of Chuck Berry's music. And so he had <clears throat> he had a, a bit of a revival and was actually, you know, more had more success than ever coming out of prison. So in that way, you know, it worked out and his career was back on track. Um, but as far as, you know, future hits, uh, you know, once again, he kind of found himself in 
kind of a sporadic, you know, you know uh, occasional charting success. Um, at one point, he signed with Mercury Records in 1966, and a lot of people will say that the only reason he did that, because Chess Records, of course, was a pretty successful um, uh, record company, uh, but Mercury Records offered him money up front, and you know, Chuck Berry became known outside of the music world for uh, potentially having some money management issues um, later on. He had some tax issues, and he continued to have some you know, legal trouble and in other cases, you know, when performing, he might, he was said to ask money for money up front before he would play. So, you know, there's, you know, there, there was something going on there as well. Um, but, you know, the Mercury Records, regardless, stint did not really work out. And in 1970, he returned to Chess Records. And he had a little bit of a resurgence, but similar to a lot of artists, you know, it, he was mostly playing his old hits. Um, a live take of the song My Ding-A-Ling that he made was a hit in 1972, and that was kind of, you know, it was a uh, one hit at a point where, you know, not a whole lot was working out for him at that time, and he was mostly playing rock revival shows with some occasional recordings during that time, and as I just said, you know, his money management point as his money management issues as his career went on from that point kind of came back and really defined the later years of his career um, in one case he served a hundred day jail sentence um, related to tax evasion and so that was kind of you know something that continued to nag his career but you know even his late career you know he still got a lot of recognition um, and you know, st continuing to tour, you know, late into his life. And I believe he passed away, I think, in 2006, maybe, or 2007. I think it was 2006. But, you know, that's Chuck Berry. I, I don't think people really, I think, you know, later in his career, people focused on um, some of those issues that he was having, but overall and especially now looking back i think most people clearly recognize him for being the rock and roll innovator that he was um and you know being a major guitar innovator as well and he clearly influenced quite a few people uh not only in the the later 1960s rock but uh you know further than that too and i think if you listen to Certain song because you know the rock and roll, the clear rock and roll hits are one thing, but I think if even if you listen to a song of his like Memphis, Tennessee, it really you can really hear a lot of like the Beatles in that song. Um, so I think he contributed in many ways, and it's something to, to definitely check out if you haven't uh, listened to Memphis, Tennessee before. Um, definitely check it out. So that is Chuck Berry. Um, Next, uh, we're going to go a little out of order according to the timeline, and we're going to talk about Jackie Wilson. And Jackie Wilson was an R&B singer, maybe even well-known for his showmanship and stage presence. 
he was originally from Detroit, and he named his primary influences as Louis Jordan and Roy Brown. Um, both of those guys we talked about on the timeline. Um, early on, uh, his, in his teenage years, he was a boxer, and he had a really brief professional boxing career. Uh, I know there's a rumor that he at one point he was a championship boxer and I got the golden gloves of, I guess it would be Michigan. Uh, but apparently that's false, um, as far as you know, as far as what I know, um, or what I've heard and read and whatnot. Uh, he was first discovered by Johnny Otis in 1951, and he eventually replaced the lead singer of Billy Ward and the Dominoes. Um, the lead singer was Clyde McFadder. Uh, Clyde McFadder went, moved on to sing with the drifters and uh billy ward uh, he was a strict leader and jackie wilson really credits him with shaping his uh you know shaping his knowledge of the music business and you know his being a professional within the music business um just because of that street that strict sort of uh disciplinary you know for better or for worse uh leadership that billy ward had and then in 1957, he signed with Brunswick Records, and he had his first solo hit, Reet Petit. Uh, it was a it was a hit in Britain, so the British charts. And those same songwriters, uh, who are Barry Gordy and Roquel Davis, Roquel, cal- collaborating with him in writing "Lonely Teardrops," which is on the timeline. And that was his first hit in America. And one thing about that song is apparently it was originally written for Roy Brown. Um, you know, I don't actually don't know if um, Roy Brown had, had covered it, but you know, it's it's uh, definitely a defining song for Jackie Wilson. It really fits his voice really well. Um, and then the, the late 1950s and 1960s that uh, really proved proved to be his most successful recording period and also it really showed off his versatility um because you know in addition to continuing to record and perform you know r&b songs or for the r&b market he also tried his hand at cabaret which he was successful at um and he also was you know even more successful uh recording um some of these uh blues ballads uh, dogging around and a woman a lover a friend so you know it's it was a successful and versatile period for jackie wilson um and of course similar to uh, a lot of these guys in this rock and roll era you know the stage presence and just these record companies or these industry individuals really trying to um take that component into consideration when um you know signing and uh putting some of these um performers um you know in the in the spotlight and Jackie Wilson is another great example just because of his stage presence you know he's known for the spins the s- splits the knee drops you know he was very uh a very uh, 
very good showman and performer. Uh, the only issue with that is that he very often was uh, criticized for being too suggestive in his dance moves. Um, and you know, some of that was probably just as we've talked about the perception of a lot of these R&B singers or performers, which you know includes blues and the other genres that we've talked about as far as not only the performance, but the uh, the lyrical content. Uh, you know, it can go as far as back as Charlie Pat Patton um, for his showmanship and kind of be la being labeled as, you know, being too suggestive, you know, in a much different way. And during Jackie Wilson's time, there was also Elvis. And Elvis, uh, you know, was doing similar things. But, of course, Elvis was largely like recognized as to some degree emulating the black performers so in Elvis's case a lot of times it was kind of once again redirected towards black performers as being suggestive or the source and so Jackie Wilson that was something that repeatedly came up in Jackie Wilson's career but nonetheless he was extremely popular I know one of those one of the early pop icons um really transcended the R&B charts and was popular in pop music. At one point, uh, when he was at a New York uh, hotel lobby, a fan, a disillusioned fan, actually shot him. Um, and obviously it was okay, but I guess the bullet was pretty close to the spine, so it was a close call. But, you know, that was the kind of, you know, turbulent kind of... similar. We talked about this with Little Richard with other issues, but just... This sort of, you know, stardom and popularity of that rock and roll and, you know, crossover to the pop chart era for these, these stars that were that was going on at the time. Um, in the 1960s, um, that's when we saw a decline. Uh, he did have some major hits such as Your, Your Love Keeps Lifting Me Higher and Higher. Um, but and generally speaking, his hits were pretty sporadic, and he found himself you know, doing uh, all these themed concerts in the 1970s up till around 1975. And 1975 was when he suffered a stroke. And really after the stroke, the stroke did a lot of brain damage. And at, at that point, he was uh, very limited in, in functioning. And then th that was kind of it until he passed away in 1984 so uh, unfortunate ending for Jackie Wilson um, some of his older hits did interestingly chart after his death in Britain um, but you know he's very uh, a very unique icon uh, for the time because as we talked about you know there's you know, that was a time where a lot of black musicians were crossing over the to the pop charts and you have, you know, these major figures like Little Richard and you have Chuck Berry and Jackie Wilson is kind of a, another completely different uh, icon who kind of had his own way and certainly influenced, you know, 
not only his that generation of singers, but you can also, you know, get influences going up to later people like Michael Jackson and some of the later pop, pop icons as far as Jackie Wilson's stage presence and his performance. And he has, you know, one of the more unique voices for those of you who have not heard Jackie Wilson sing before. Definitely check it out. So that's Jackie Wilson. Um, our last artist for this episode is James Brown. And James Brown, he was known as a great uh, R&B musician, of course, maybe even better known for his innovations in both soul music and even more so for funk, uh, one of the creators and original funk musicians. And of course, he had a very legendary stage presence as well. Uh, so as far as his childhood and early influences, his dad was said to sing uh, blues songs in the evenings when he got home from work. Uh, so that would have been probably his earliest influence. But uh, the interesting part about that is he actually only lived with his parents until he was four. So, you know, that's a very brief period of time that he would have been around his parents in that capacity. And at that point, when he was four years old, uh, his mom had left the family and he was sent to Georgia to live with his aunt. Um, and one of the, I think, more well-documented things about uh, James Brown Brown's early life was his aunt ran a brothel. A lot of people talk about, you know, James Brown being raised in a in a brothel. So that's where that kind of that's where that comes from. Um, and in those days, uh, he showed as the in his in his early age kind of that entrepreneurial drive, which we can see throughout his career. And he would work in the fields, and he would also wash cars, and he would. Uh, shine shoes and he would perform on the streets for for money he also performed for you know specifically for like soldiers uh coming back from world war ii and so he just was really hustling in the early days uh he named an early influence as louis jordan um uh once again louis jordan uh you know huge uh huge figure uh for those early R&B artists. And James Brown uh, also uh, was largely self-taught. Uh, his first instrument was actually the harmonica, which was given to him by his father. And at eight, he learned to play the organ and he played a little bit on the bass, guitar, saxophone, and trumpet. And he, not, he didn't necessarily master all of these instruments, but he, you know, he, uh, you know, got to a pretty competent point with all these different instruments. I think that probably was helpful for the type of direction he was trying to go with his music as far as really innovation innovation and shaping new sounds. And when he was 12, he formed the Cremona Trio. Um, so that was his first, you know, I guess formal band experience. Um, but with uh, James Brown's sort of unsteady upbringing, you know, 
uh, economic troubles, uh, you know, not the best. We talked about, you know, him going to live with his aunt when he was four. Um, so he was, you know, just making money any way he could. And one of the ways he did that was stealing car bar- batteries, hubcaps, and he would sentence, or sorry, he would sell those for, uh, you know, basically basic needs and clothes. Um, and then when he was 15, he uh, got his second offense for stealing cars, and he was sentenced to 8 to 16 years um, in a juvenile prison. And while he was there, he formed a quartet, similarly to uh, Chuck Berry. And so that was, you know, in the same way, that was the way he was able to continue to work on his music. And he served, ended up serving about three years as well. And he was released on parole in 1952. And at that point, he joined, he joined the Avons and the, the Avons later became the famous Flames, which is, uh, you know, one of his, uh, became his backing band that he continued to perform with. Um, and so as this group became more successful, um, little man, sorry, little Richard's manager, uh, Clint Bradley, and, uh, he discovered them and he signed them and they joined the federal label of King's records. Uh, James Brown had already kind of developed this, uh, unique sound, um, and he was kind of slowly transforming R&B into, you know, this funk sound down the, that would emerge down the road. And because he was, you know, making these major changes, you know, funk is uh, definitely a very different music. Um, you know, the sound that he was creating, a lot of people, you know, people uh, at the record and um, managers were pretty skeptical about, you know, that this that this was going to work out and you know they definitely disagreed and pushed back against uh, some of the songs that he was trying to make and perform but you know the success of the songs and his you know persistence was really the difference and once he uh got his first hit his first hit was please 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 in 1956 you know at that point everyone kind of you know saw that saw and kind of got on board a little bit as far as seeing where he was going. And then his his first actual major hit was Try Me in 1958, which is uh, the first song he has on our, on our timeline. Um, one of the things about James Brown is he's really well known for his work ethic, ethic his uh, tireless concert performances. He would, you know, get to the point where he was nearly collapsing on stage. If you've ever seen a James Pro- James Brown concert, um, I mean, definitely, you know, find one, you know, if you haven't seen one already. But you can just see, you know, through the act, through the concert, you know, he's just constantly working, constantly moving. And, you know, towards the end, you, you know, you can definitely see that he leaves it all on the stage. And, you know, he's a very extravagant, you know, very good showman. And um, in 1963, uh, he was trying to do a, a, a live album, and he's trying to get financing for it, and he was unable to get the financing. 
So he had decided to finance it himself. And so he recorded live at the Apollo, which was, uh, you know, one of the biggest live albums of the time. It was a very successful band, you know, in this case, it was a crossover hit and it became big in the mainstream mainstream market. And so, you know, that, that really opened things up and he was able to perform um, for, you know, the increasing integrated performances, which was an expanding market and really gave access black artists to a much larger, much larger audience. So James Brown, he, up until this point, he had largely remained politically neutral, um, being a black pop icon um, and considering the times, a lot of people wanted to see him, you know, take a stance and support certain issues, um, but it wasn't until 1966 where he switched from that neutral stance and really started to support a lot of the civil rights and social movements that were going on at the time. And he got involved with a number of the uh, activists and, you know, and you can really see his music also over time shift and become more um, focused and um, more you know clearly in support of the black community and some of the things the issues that were going on at the time. And it really fits very nicely with the funk sound, funk music that he was developing, because, you know, funk really becomes symbolic of black culture, you know, in the 1970s and early 1980s. And so, you know, once he releases the Out of, Out of Sight album, uh, you know, you can see, clearly see the polyrhythm and the staccato, the staccato horns, the dynamic bass, and, uh, you know, it was very evident um, where his music was going. It was very, you know, a pretty, getting to a pretty developed, you know, funk sound, which you can clearly hear in that album. And then in 1967, when he releases Cold Sweat, uh, you know, that's really the iconic um, funk funk song, you know, consider, maybe consider the first funk song, one of the first funk songs, but um, it's, in, you know, interesting that it is one of the first funk songs because it's, you know, very well developed. It's similar to when we talked about with T-Bone Walker and uh, Stormy Monday. When you, when you listen to Stormy Monday, it's, uh, when you consider the time that it came out, it really is timeless as far as the, the, uh, as far as slow blues goes, um, you know, really holds up well today and very similar to Cold Sweat. When you listen to Cold Sweat, uh, you know, it sounds like funk from, you know, the soon to come funk era and, you know, even funk of today. Um, and, you know, one of the things about 
you know, that song or early funk is, you know, a lot of people focus on the drums, the beat, the drum beat. But um, really, more importantly, um, was the the open-ended rhythms of funk and the emergence of the bass guitar and the bass guitar really kind of becoming a key figure in the music and, you know, being becoming more than a backbone, essentially. Um, you know, we've mentioned the evolution of the bass a little bit uh, when we talked about the invention of electrical recording and just electrical electric guitar in general, and so how that sort of changed the whole uh, field as far as how bands were set up, how they were recorded, how um, it impacted performance. And through this whole time, the bass guitar, you know, is of course completely different than stand-up bass or acoustic bass. And this whole time, you know, it was as music, the R&B genre and we've progressed up to this point, the electric bass has sort of been, you know, it's one of the few instruments that's really going through a, a really completely different um, transformation because the electric bass can even, maybe even more so than the electric guitar can be utilized um, in a much different way. Because when you think about the electric guitar or the guitar in general or these other instruments, you know, acoustically, they have existed in a format in music for some time. You know, we've talked about kind of the role that guitar played before it was electric. Um, but, you know, when you think about the, you know, the bass sounds and the, uh, um, that, um, Uh, when you just talk about bass in general and sort of that uh, that that area that the bass um, what's the word that I'm looking for um, that the scale that the bass covers um, you know that that is largely unta- untapped in music and you know, in the way that the electric bass is able to address it. And so as, as, and so like one of the things that we focused on at this point is, you know, just the amplification and the increase of sound and how you could change those, those dynamics. But of course, with the bass, you know, elevating the bass sounds um, is kind of a new field that you kind of unlock with um, the electrification of instruments and all of a sudden, you're really able to amplify bass and you know really reconstruct and reuse the instrument. And so, over time, um, you know, it didn't it didn't just come out of, out of nowhere. It it's something that's been emerging emerging on the timeline. Now you get to funk, and all of a sudden, you know, the the emergence and the use of the bass, the bass is able to step forward and become you know more of a featured instrument in funk and and of course, funk is precedes hip hop. So, funk and hip hop, we definitely see uh, the bass really become a step in the forefront.
And so that's really, I think, something that, I mean, with the funk genre in general, I think uh, sometimes people look at it as um, they may not give as, as much recognition as maybe it should get, you know, it was a little bit, it's kind of a unique music for in a window of time. And as we'll talk about, you know, kind of was marketed or not even marketed, was more so uh, relevant to a specific segment of the population. So sometimes I think it gets a little bit overlooked and uh, you don't really see um, kind of how the funk, how funk was as revolutionary as some of these other genres and, you know, could have been just as big or as important as some of these other genres when we talk about the evolution of music. But as I said before, I don't want to, I want to try to keep it as relevant to James Brown because uh, we'll talk about funk a little bit more later on, but James Brown is such a key figure uh, in the development of funk and, you know, the time period in which he was performing, you know, you kind of have to, you know, kind of have to find a balance here and uh, talk about James Brown and also funk. But I think the, the main keys is, you know, as I just said, it it's, uh, was important in the development of hip hop. And it was even more important just because it aligned with this period of black pride and you know, social and economic success that was occurring within the black community at the time and really paired together uh, really well. And another way it it went well with it was just because, uh, you know, during this time, a lot of African-Americans were trying to reconnect with their African roots. Uh, You know, it was at this period of time, you know, the economical there was an economical shift and, you know, we've talked about the great migration, um, at this point, you know, the, you know, urban life for the black community was, you know, it had been established. Um, we're talking about, you know, the recent, the current and recent civil rights and civil rights movement. And so, you know, the whole picture was changing a little bit as far as people just, uh, struggling to be recognized as citizens and to, you know, have basic rights. And now, you know, you have a segment of the population, the black population who was, you know, becoming more established and now, you know, can look forward and look to other things that, you know, weren't just about, you know, just getting the basics and trying to actually now take a retrospective view of, you know, what's happened and, you know, of course, some of, a lot of that occurred in the civil rights movement and, you know, look, take that history and, you know, current life and some of the economic success and political victories and social success and, you know, use that in other ways. And some of that included, you know, the, you know, trying to reattach with African roots. And it was, as it was in another way that, uh, that was another way that funk worked out because funk was a it was not necessarily a um music that that uh went mainstream as we'll talk about with james brown in james brown case in 1960 1968 after releasing cold sweat he followed it up in 1968 with i got the feeling 
which was, you know, a huge hit. But that, you know, was one of his last uh, crossover hits for that time period. And so he, he soon really just was seen in the R&B market. And, you know, that really represented um, what funk was because uh, all of a sudden this, this funk music, it wasn't it didn't really resonate with mainstream America. Uh, it, he dominated the R&B charts because the black community was who was consuming funk music and it really resonated, as, as I've been saying, with what was going on with the black community at the time. And so he has really dominated the R&B charts and and not only that, but the music was really, funk music really went international. And once again, it wasn't necessarily, you know, just widespread international. It specifically was international for, you know, Africans and uh, communities of African descent. Uh, you saw it in the Caribbean. You could hear it in reggae. Um, it was, you know, could hear it in Brazil. And, you know, it influenced, uh, you know, some Af- African artists who were would be known to influence them to, in what would be known as Afrobeat. Um, you know, a little bit later, um, you know, James Brown took some trips to Africa and were able to interact with some artists in that way too. And so it was really just, uh, you know, it was a very interesting period um, for black Americans and, you know, funk really fits right into it. And I think some of that, you know, certainly was intentional as we've talked about, um, you know, this is not, um, you know, an isolated incident, you know, the, the lineage, the the timeline really represents and shows kind of a the evolution and the progress and you know the struggles um, of not only the music but you know you can see you know how and each step the music really reflects what was going on with the black community at the time and some of the struggles of the musicians you know what the musicians were singing about and you know funk of course um, represents in many ways kind of a it's kind of like coming full circle in a way because with blues you know we started off with uh musicians who were you know post-slavery in slavery and then post-slavery in the, the reconstruction era and everything that surrounded that and the struggles with that and of course in this case um a lot of the black americans were living in rural areas um you know largely related to slavery and just, you know, the Southern economy. And, and at that time, you know, blues was a genre that was largely restricted to the black community um, because, you know, it was not necessarily relevant to uh, the rest of the country. And of course, not only that, you know, there is, it was also the times, you know, this is before, uh, a lot of the, you know, the industry and the the business that we talk about uh, later on that develops, but you know, just generally speaking, you know, there was there was definitely a relevance. Um, you know, the black the blues musicians were playing about issues and and things that were relevant to you know recent and current black life, and you know, didn't necessarily apply to everybody else and. And it was a music genre that, of course, as we talked about last episode, was 
you know, really identified as the blues by the musicians or you know by the immediate culture um and then we saw that change a bit uh later on um and the blues was international to a certain extent also uh we talked about some of the success that blues had in europe and you know it was in a different way this was more of a you know people outside the country being introduced to black america for the first time and you know they were they received it differently uh, of course in the united states there was all the racial discrimination all this racial turmoil and so it was definitely different a different relationship than with the funk international uh occurrence that we just talked about but you know in a lot of ways it's similar but then as we move on to these other genres like r&b and the rock and roll we see the shift as um the population moves to the cities and uh the business kind of reforms things not only reforms things but also renames things and um and kind of you know shapes the music in a way that you know best fits the business and best fits the market that they're trying to uh best best fits the people who they're trying to market to and so that kind of changes the direction of the song a little bit but at the same time the core of the music is still there and and uh you know that continues to progress you know the music the music still being developed and moved forward and evolved and then once we get to uh funk it's kind of where we see a return to uh to um the black prosperity that was happening because you know before during this sort of you know r&b and rock and roll time there was success but also kind of reflected you know the shift and the struggle and some of the things that black people were dealing with but now we've kind of seen you know towards the end of the rock and roll era getting into the sunk the funk and soul era you know there's a you know things have changed to a certain extent and in a lot of ways uh the black community is you know in a better space and is really in a much more prideful space you know civil rights was marked by you know that the a period where you know these rights were due to the black americans and black americans were fighting for their rights and now you know to some to some extent there was a uh, progress and there was you know room for celebration and there is room for you know a lot more self-reflection and a lot more you know looking in the future because there was some movement and there was some you know success there and we've talked about some of the successes in small business and and all of that you know as far as being able to you know find a be able to settle in the cities and find you know some success there and really you know for the first time uh I think, um, you know, finding, uh, in some ways, you know, finding a home uh, in in America within the country, you know, all of a sudden you have these artists who are not only, you know, kind of restricted to what just had recently be called, been called the race market, uh, race music. Now, you know, you have musicians becoming uh, big on pop charts and you know the whole this whole time everything the music is reflecting what's going on 
in the communities. And so, you know, I think as we get into the funk era, that kind of really is the, the pinnacle of that. And the music, you know, once again, similar to the blues, it kind of comes back and really resonates mostly with the people who made it. But, you know, it's obviously in a much more positive, um, reaffirming way that, you know, the blues was, you know, just as important. But this, you know, definitely fits the time as far as, you know, that those those successes and where we were going from there. And I think probably the key definitive um, part of funk and what was going on as far as black pride and the black power movement was that future idea was that forward looking where you know it's not just about the struggle but you have you know these artists making songs that are talking about um you know more of these futuristic uh, ideas where we can go you know some even you know some sci-fi you know you get into the psychedelic area and some of these ideas you know that come from you know something like afrofuturism and some of these other notions that you just didn't really see as much in the art early on um, when people were, you know, going from these migration stages to, uh, you know, just getting out of slavery and then, you know, kind of fighting for rights and freedom. And so, you know, obviously things were not perfect, but, you know, when you just look at the progress and, you know, what was going on at the time, you know, it's very interesting. At, at the very least to uh, just look at how, you know, from a music standpoint, how funk uh, really fits well into this time period and just this time period in general, I think I find very interesting. And we'll talk about it a little bit more. Um, but I'm trying not to get too far off track from from James Brown. Um So in 1970, he formed his backing band, the JBs, and the JBs were uh, already really pioneering funk musicians in their own right. Um, he, uh, the JBs, really existed. You know, they were JBs. I'm sorry, they were John Bra James Brown. Okay, they were James Brown. Uh, backing band but they also you know existed outside of James Brown and the JB's have uh, some of their own albums and they did their own performances you can find the uh, JB's music out there and when you listen to it you can hear um, where a lot of hip-hop was sampled from the JB's they definitely were you know progressing in the funk sound into that direction and of course hip-hop was you know is based on funk and actually their uh their song the funky drummer is said to be one of the most sampled um songs in history interesting fact there um So of course, um, the other component of James Brown is we've already kind of talked about just his performance style, but uh, you know, importantly, he 
you talk about uh, his sort of pop presence, his performance, uh, stage presence. He uh, was, you know, a noted influence of Michael Jackson, but, you know, he really set the tone for a lot of the pop stars down the road, you know, Prince, um, even including some more of the the artists around that time. You can think of like uh, Mick Jagger and, you know, he was a very big influence and, you know, his career um, and his influence is, you know, sort of range of influence um, is, you know, very large when you consider, you know, him starting out in R&B and then also, you know, primarily punk, pioneering the funk sound, but he also integrated that into soul and, you know, also was seen as a, a big soul artist, you know, soul brother number one, um, you know, so he's, he's uh, one of the artists probably that covers maybe the most uh, as far as genres and con- contributions um, just because the sounds that he created were uh, so so different than you know when you think about going from one genre to the next um, and his span of influence you know clearly is um, influencing musicians uh, all the way up to you know pretty recent times so definitely a very important figure on the timeline and we'll talk about funk a little bit more in upcoming episodes but you know that's basically uh, James Brown and uh, that's about it for this episode um, next time we'll talk a lot about you know we'll get into soul and and I think we'll talk about some of the other kind of social events that were going around on around that time that might come back a little bit to rock and roll but generally speaking you know we're, we'll talk about soul you know Motown is a big uh, discussion to be had it's a huge component of that that uh, that era so we'll get into that next time so once again you know thanks for listening um, you know check out the timeline especially if you're uh, new to the podcast um, check out the timeline it's a really easy way to check to uh, catch up uh, you can go through you know um, each artist and they all have songs and a little bit in a little bit of information and clips with them so you can kind of just see the evolution that way you know that's a whole another way to approach it um too is just if you just listen to songs and kind of try to hear the evolution of the music and how things kind of led to this point um that's a another way to go about it but check it out bluelineage.com um thanks for listening i'll see you next time